Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends, welcome back to the podcast. It has been a while. Give you a little break. Give ourselves a little break. And now we're back. We're, we're kicking it in full gear for the fall. We got a lot going on. And so, uh, hello, intern. Hello. And there it is. Intern's real loud today. Um, we've got... Um, got a podcast we do with Faith Haygood. It was actually, uh, we did it, in, uh, it was from a, what our church called a growth group. Other churches know them as... Classes, Bible classes. Yeah, but we had Faith Haygood, our friend from LA in town, preaching, and so I thought, let's just hit record and uh, turn this into a podcast. Do you think it, like, was that a good idea, yeah. intern? Yeah. 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 Yeah, I think so. You and Faith are like best friends now. You oh. did some chauffeuring. Yeah, we're buddies. I know everything about him. Really? What do you know about him? Um, I know that his church is in Carson. Carson. Yep. But he lives in Compton. Yeah. What do you know about Compton? Not very much. Really? Nope. You so you don't know much of it. Like I figured you'd have learned about Compton from him. Mm-mm. You know you know what he told me about Compton? What? That at night he likes to just have people over and be like, Hey, listen to that. What do you hear? Nothing. There's no like gunshots or ghetto birds as he calls it. You know what a ghetto bird is? No, it's a ghetto bird. That is a, a police helicopter. Huh. Ghetto bird. Ghetto bird. You're welcome. Anyway, he said people, like he said, don't believe the hype about Compton. But you know what you should believe the hype about? This podcast. Fate's doing some stuff. We talk about race. We'll get that in a second. Um, but yeah, we've got a lot going on this fall. We, we've got actually uh, less than two months until my book releases. And so that's kind mm. of, like, that's kind of a big deal to me. Yeah. Like, we've put a lot oh, into that. So, you know, get a copy, get a pre-order. You can do that now on Amazon or wherever. So it, yeah. Why is it important that people pre-order? So you get the book. Like you, I mean, it's good for me because like, it helps when there's more pre-sales that other people see it and go, oh, well, maybe we should pick up the book and have it in our store and give it prominent place. So you're helping out your boy Luke by pre-ordering, but also you're making sure you get the book as soon as it comes out. You don't want to miss. Uh. No, we're going to have a, a, a launch event in Austin the week of the launch. I think our friend Annie F. Downs might even yeah. be along. She's got a book coming out too, so... I mean, who knows? Pre-order now, and then you can get it signed at the event in Austin. That'd be a game changer. Okay, you know what else is a game changer? Our sponsor for this month, the Missions Resource Network. Have you ever heard of MRN? I have not. Okay, let me tell you. Intern, this might be appropriate for you. Do you feel personally called to disciple-making? Does your church need help to enhance its missions program? Your dad is on the missions program, isn't he? Yeah. He needs help. Not like personally, but like if... Mm. That's debatable. Okay. If so, Missions Resource Network can help. This global ministry provides training and coaching, connections with international partners, and can position you for success as you embrace God's calling. If you have time or inclination, you might talk in particular about the work we've been doing, advancing and embracing God's work calling Muslims to himself in the Mediterranean Rim. That's like around Greece. Yeah. Yeah, I've been there. So... We're looking for more disciple makers who can help prepare to go and more churches who want to answer that call to. To learn more, visit their website, M-R-N-E-T dot O-R-G. That's kind of a confusing one. I messed that up a few times myself. That's M-R-N-E-T dot O-R-G. There you go. There's your sponsor for the month. Check them out. And now, without further ado, Fade Haygood. The Preacher. Third, Fate Hager the third. Fate Hager the, the fifth is his grandson who was just born. Here we go. Ooh. 
How's Texas treating you, Fate? Man, amazing. It's what, been awesome. What's your favorite thing about Texas so far? <laughs> Dinner last night. <laughs> Mike Benaglio cooked. So that's... Yeah, you get a round of applause for Mike Benaglio Man. cooking. I told, I told Fate, I was like, hey, uh, he's, he's a foodie, right? A little bit. Little bit. I, I, I don't even think that's a real thing because everyone likes to eat food. <laughs> but um, So I knew I had to take him to the best place to eat in Austin, Texas. And there was only one place that came to my mind. Mike Benaglio's house. And so I felt like I was over-promising, but I was like, this is going to be great. And how was it? It was amazing. Yeah. Okay. All that to say, you all need to guest preach sometime at Westover so Mike will cook for you. (laughs) That's the deal. Now, uh, when when Faye was going to come out here, I thought that it would be great if we could do some sort of uh, growth group time, conversation, discussion. And one of the things that I would love to talk about is racial reconciliation. But one of my main concerns as to why I didn't want to do it like that is because the last thing I wanted was to have a conversation in which we bring in a black guy and say, hey, black guy, tell us white people how to... F- yeah, you're, <laughs> thanks for pointing, in case people didn't figure that one out. <laughs> what I didn't want is for the conversation to be, hey, black person, tell us white people how we're supposed to fi- fix racial problems. Because I, I don't think it's fair as white people to say the, the weight and the onus on racial reconciliation is on people of color to inform us, as though people of color have a responsibility to inform white people of what we need to do in this issue. And so with that being the ground work, like I, this is not, hey, fake, come in and you tell us what we need to do, but let us have a conversation on reconciliation together as, as friends. And we've done this multiple times before. Absolutely. And uh, one of the reasons that I wanted to share this with you all is because uh, fate has helped me a whole lot. He has taught me things um, that I would love to share with you, um, but I don't expect him, nor should you all expect anyone of color, I'm talking to the white people in the room, uh, it, it is not people of color's responsibility to inform you about racial reconciliation. It is your responsibility. It is my responsibility. And so it is our responsibility to ask questions and to learn and to read books and to listen, but it's not fair to expect other people to inform us. Okay, we all got that as a ground rule? Okay. With that being said, I'm going to spoil something you said in first, in first service. If you, if you didn't hear the sermon already, uh, spoiler alert, sorry. <laughs> but Faith said when he was growing up, he wore a brand of clothing called Cross, cross Colors. colors. <laughs> now, I... Anyone, here, anyone in here know what Cross Colors is? Yes? A few? Okay. W- when I was growing up living in Philadelphia, I was like 11 or 12, and I went to the store because I wanted to get a Cross Color shirt. Nice. Okay? And so I, I got this shirt, and then I walked to the cashier to check out, and they say, hey, uh, this is a size large. Are you sure you need a size Which I didn't need as a 12-year-old weighing like 104 pounds. I said, oh, okay, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll go back and get a different one. So I went back to the rack and I just grabbed something that said small on it, which is what would still have been pretty baggy on me, but I grab it, I walk, pay, don't even look at it. And I get home and the cross-color shirt that I just purchased <laughs> says, let's end black-on-black violence. Nice. <laughs> Now, I'm very supportive of it. Like, I think that's a good thing to end, but I don't feel like that's my conversation to be in. My question is, did you rock the shirt? No. (laughs) How do you think that would go over in like 1991, a little white kid in Philly wearing that shirt, let's end black on black violence. That's why I wanted to know. (laughs) 
Do you still have any cross collars? I do not. That you know? was 130 pounds ago. <laughs> <laughs> okay, next subject. Now, yeah. here, okay, for the story of cross colors, yeah. wasn't it Bloods and Crips trying to end, like to, to create peace across the colors? Isn't that part of it? Nah. No? Nah, it was just a brand. Yeah. I didn't read. I think that was on the. Sh- Someone Google after that. <laughs> I was gonna, that was going to be a nice segue if you would have said yes. Let's try that again. Wasn't it about... Like, yes, actually it was. Okay. <laughs> Here's the transition. It's kind of saddening when the conversation about bringing people together across different colors is happening for people not connected to the story of Jesus, but outside. Absolutely. Because as people of Jesus, this should be central to our identity. The problem is it doesn't always happen doesn't always happen. You did a class at Pepperdine, yep. uh, about 10 or 20 things that white churches should know about black churches and black churches should know about white churches. Sure. And before that class, you texted me, go, hey, can I show a picture of you? Which I was like, oh, this is not going to go well. <laughs> this is what white people have to deal with in church, right? <laughs> okay, so at, you're talking to a church that has some diversity, but predominantly there's a lot of white people in here. When you think of the things that white churches need to know about black churches, oh, what are some of the things that come to mind? Like in that class, what are some of the things that you talked about? Uh, well, one of the things that, uh, that, that we said in the class was that um, <clears throat> what, what most, many black folks, and it, it's, black folks really aren't, as many people think, this big monolith. We all think the same, do the same. We really, really are extremely diverse. But one of the things that, that is usually a, a theme through black churches is that um, we are very, very serious about worship. Um, and, uh, and often, often uh, I've, I've heard it characterized several ways. Um, one, uh, on the more positive, why well, you guys have a lot of fun at church? Well, for us, it's not really fun. It's, <laughs> it's kind of what we do. Uh, the other was... Uh, uh, why is all this showboarding in church? Uh, and what we'd like to know is that, that most let know is that it's not showboarding for us. You know, it's it's connection for us. Um, that that we are we, we feel that uh, our emotions belong to God, and 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 it's, we don't have an opportunity when we're just in the regular public to express those emotions corporately to God. And so when we come together. We shout, we sing, we, we, we clap, we move, we cry, you know. Um, and it, it's, it's a part of, of, of our culture. It, it, and some of it, it reaches all the way back to Africa um, in, in our services. You know, the call and response. Uh, it's a very African thing. Um, the way we sing, uh, the, the, the interaction. We, we, see, we see worship as... An interaction. It's 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 less um, Greco-Roman uh, type of podium too, and it's more conversation. It's when we're singing, you know, um, uh, at Metro. If if the worship leader is singing, and it's something you just have to get used to in the vibe of the church. But if the worship singing, if he's singing, let me see a song that we would call. Let's, okay, we'll sing a song that we would call a white song. Okay. 
Well, we just call it, we call it the white song is because it's a song we get from white camps. So, you know, like the, like the kids at the white camp sing a lot of these songs. We love these songs. And so, so we call them, we're going to sing one of the white songs. So, so we're saying, humble thyself in the sight of the Lord. Right. And, you know, and everybody is, you know, we're kind of calling and responding. But, but at our church, that song will have like 10 different parts. They're like, humble thyself, humble before the Lord. Um, humble thyself. Uh, then, then, then at the end, it'll be, and he will lift you up, and he will lift you up, yes, he will, he will, he will, yes, and, and, and all of a sudden, you know, and, and, and so some people are still singing, while part of the church is yes, humble I say yes, um, and it's like ten different parts, um, and people are like, well, that's fun. Well, for us, it's connection, <laughs> you know. It's um, and and so you know, it's like really a serious thing. And so that was one of the things we we went over. Um, but then on the flip of that, when we asked about uh, because I I, I I I go to all of our churches, you know, white, black, Mexican. I go to all of our churches. Um, and I said, what I, what I would like for, for a lot of the black church to understand is that, that white folks are really serious about worship, too. It's just a different culture. So, so whereas we see it as overt, they feel the presence of the solemnity of the worship moment. And I said, if you've never been, you don't understand, you know. But there'll be people that are just crying, just boohoo tears. And you don't even know why they're crying, but they're in that moment. Um, and so, what you call what you know what what a black person might say? Oh, that was so boring. Oh my God! No wonder it's so short. <laughs> <laughs> but what you don't understand is that it is just as deep and just as moving. It's just different. And that was one of the things we kind of discussed, just on differences when you talk about, you know, yeah, yeah, just liturgically. Well, on the surface level, it's easy to go, well, that seems more fun, or this seems right. like they're less engaged, or this is more soulful, or this is right. soulless, or whatever. Right. But you're able to, to jump past the superficial read on those things. Absolutely. Why are you able to do that? Like, what enables you to, to move past just the surface read on the two, di- they're not diametrically opposed, but they're two differing perspectives on how worship is to look? Well, first is theological. God is spirit. God is not flesh. And so how we manifest worship in the flesh, in some ways, is irrelevant because God is spirit. And so we connect with God in a way deeper than our outward show. That, that's the first one. But the second one is practical. Because um, where I grew up, um, uh, um, and you know, I grew up angry. And you, you'll find that that even that angry black man is a real thing, but it's not the anger that a lot of people think it is. Um, but we we grew up angry. Um, um, and we grew up angry many times at white people, just as a general. <laughs> We're just angry. <laughs> so, but as I grew up, I grew up in Compton. Um, I grew up in a place called Fruit Town um, in Compton. It's called Fruit Town because it's like Plum Street, Peach Street. Yeah. But it's, it's where 
where the gang, it's also a street there called Piru Street. Um, it's where the gang, the Pyrus began. That, that gang morphed into the gang you probably know called the Bloods. So I grew up where the Bloods began. So the people who started the Bloods are my contemporaries. <clears throat> so I grew up running home from school, running from gangs, you know, getting jumped on the whole nine. Um, but, you know, so that was bad, right? I also grew up getting jumped on by white folks. Um, uh, I remember a guy, and he was with his kids. And now, and now, now that I'm older, I see how vulgar that was because he was, he was on a horse with his two daughters. His, he was on a horse, his daughters were on a horse. And I was riding our bikes down the canal, um, just going back home from swimming on the summer, and he stopped us. And we're like, yo, why are you stopping us? And um, so he used his horse to knock me down from my bike. Um, and then he started calling me all kind of uh, racial slurs. Um, that was bad. Um, and another time I was walking home, there's a school in Long Beach, Long Beach, Jordan. And uh, me and my friend, I'm, I'm a comic book fanatic. <laughs> But this is back in the day, so there was no Kindle, or <coughs> we had to walk. And we walked like five miles to get comics because you had to go to the best stores to get the best comics. And so we walked and got the comics. We were on our way home, walking past Long Beach, Jordan, and there's some white guys sitting across the street. I guess they were college. We were still in high school, so I guess they were college guys. And there was probably 12 of them sitting on, a, on the porch, just being, you know, knuckleheads. But college guys are just knuckleheads, so it didn't really bother me. Um, but then they started calling us stuff, and we started calling them stuff back. <laughs> and so, uh, and we didn't think of nothing. We kept walking. We looked back. We saw all them running to get in the truck. And so we took off running, right? Uh, now, my friend's like a track star, so I said, this is what I want you to do. You run and get help. I'm going to run into school. They'll follow me into school. You get help. Of course, he never got help. He literally ran all the way home. <laughs> he never came back. <laughs> but I run into school, and they're in the truck, so they catch me right when I'm running into the hall. And these guys just jumped on me, started just pounding on me, right? And I'm like, why are you hitting me? Why are you jumping on me? And they said, because you're black, because you're, you know, blah, blah, blah. They literally said that. And so next thing I know, I hear this sound, boom, boom, boom. I didn't know because I was just covered up and come to find out in the classroom off the hall from where I was, there was this huge black football player <laughs> and he heard them out there saying it and he ran out of the school and he just tried to kill them all. <laughs> I had never been that happy to see somebody in my life. <laughs> but I use those stories because in my growing up, all the fists felt the same. Black fists, white fists, getting jumped on was getting jumped on. And so it stopped me from being all that racist. You know, I just like, yo, people are just people. We got evil people, good people. People are just people. So one of my uh, friends is a professor at ACU named uh, Stephen Moore, and his yeah. dissertation was on black rage. Yeah. And uh, he was finishing when I was in school, and I remember hearing him talk about it. And then I know there's a line by... 
James Baldwin, uh, the author, the American author, who says, uh, to be a black man is to constantly live with rage. Or Absolutely. Anger. Something like that. Uh, the quote might not be accurate there. But I, I don't understand rage like that. I don't understand anger like that. I, I had a kid or two bully me when I was growing up, but nothing substantial, nothing even close to those stories. Um, and, and it never was because of the color of my skin. When Baldwin's talking about to be a black man is to live with rage or anger, and when Stephen's dissertation is on black rage, I, I don't understand what that's like. I, I know you can see that both fists feel the same when they're hitting you, but there is a different sort of anger that constantly you find in all these different sources of people talking about there's anger in the black experience. Absolutely. What should we know about that? What, well, it, it, for, for me, um, it's intrinsic within my experience as an American. Um, and it, 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 you, know, well, you know, psychologists tell you, you know, anger is it's a signal that you're frustrated, that you're afraid, or that you're hurt. We're that from the time we start to understand ourself. Um, I was raised in order to navigate two or three worlds. I have to be able to navigate, I have to know how to survive, literally survive, getting through a white neighborhood. I don't know why folks say, well, we're afraid of the black neighborhood, Believe me, you can come in my neighborhood as long as you're not trying to buy drugs. You're cool. <laughs> Nobody's going to know. They're just going to say, hey, there's a white person. <laughs> but we had to, and my dad would say, if, if you're pulled over by the police, put your hands on the steering wheel. Don't move. Don't say anything. Just put your hands on the steering wheel. Get your ticket and leave. Um, I remember one time my, my father, we were, and, and I, my friends from Mississippi hate me. <laughs> but I, I would say, Look, yo, I just, Mississippi, I just avoid Mississippi. I just, <laughs> my dad used to tell me, if you're in the South, stay out of Mississippi. How, how old are you? I'm 56. 56, okay. Uh, I'm just spitballing here, but um, one of the last most uh, prominent lynchings is uh, the tragedy of Emmett Till, yeah. right? Which is... Well, it's not clearly, it's not, it's not close to the last one, but Well, yeah. I know, but it's a very prominent <laughs> one. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, forgive that overstatement, but that's a story that you probably grew up being well accustomed to. Absolutely. And so when you think of the fear of going into white neighborhoods, those stories come into your mind. It's literally survival. <laughs> it's literally it's, I'm not saying metaphorically yeah. you just want to get through I mean literally this is how you get through yeah. so that you can live I mean you know and I tell you I, about and I'm horrible with dates was it three years ago you remember the time they had the they had like, it's like four, three or four um, black guys killed real quickly and then in Dallas yeah, like four or five uh, a policemen shot, you know, yeah. it's all in the right, on the, at the same time, right? Mm-hmm. And I remember uh, when I was watching those images, how angry and disappointed I was. Um, 
here's why. Because I grew up, I'm, I, I was born in 62. I grew up through the 60s and the 70s. You know, um, um, I grew up with a lot of stuff. Um, but I thought as a nation we were past that. You know, um, so my son, um, I, I didn't raise him quite the same way my dad raised me. You know, my son is, uh, <laughs> if the police stop him, he's like, well, my rights are. <laughs> I'm a citizen, you know, because that's kind of how I raised him, you know. But then I'm starting to think, oh, my God. Oh, my God. My kids got to go through this. stuff. Oh, my God. Here we go again. I thought we were kind of, I mean, I, I'm not Pollyanna. I, I, I didn't think it was something perfect, some Nirvana kind of world. That, that's not what I was saying. But I just did think we were past that. I thought that was done. Yeah. You know, I'm just. I, I was preaching in Dallas the, within a couple of weeks after the shooting. I remember going to my hotel and there were um, banners, like you see of like a football player when you go into the Cowboy Stadium, uh, of the police officers, like in memory of these people all through downtown Dallas. Um, and then. And dur- it should have been. Uh, of course. Mm-hmm. And during the funeral, uh, President Bush. He had this uh, great line where he said, we judge uh, ourselves based on our best of intentions and by others of their worst of actions. And when it comes to this conversation, it seems that we naturally judge people who look like us, act like us, have our experiences, our culture with the best of intentions. And then we look at others and we go, well, this is your worst of actions. And what seems to happen in this conversation is, when a person of color describes their experience with law enforcement, white people, myself included, naturally want to side with the people who look like us. My aunt is a cop, my college friends, many of them are in law enforcement, um, and I, I can associate with that story. There is a form of racism that presents when white people say blanketly about the black experience that all of that is not true. It is a form of racism if you don't believe an entire group of people when they describe their experience. And, and the, part of the problem is that we've, we've lived into this binary political world in which everything is filtered through Republican or Democrat language. And the problem as Christians is that we are more discipled by what happens on CNN or Fox News, and we are more discipled by Bill O'Reilly or Stephen Colbert than we are by Jesus. And the way that presents itself is when we are squeezed in situations like this, the only language that comes out of us is the language of cable news or the news you get on Twitter or however you get to consume the news. When that is the only language that you produce, it's because you are more discipled by them than by Jesus because Jesus teaches us that you can be for the black person who's scared for his kid to get home at night. You can be for them and you can also be for the white kid who's scared of his mom or dad coming home from night after putting on the blue and the badge. Jesus trumps that and gives us a new way of seeing this thing. But the problem is we seem to be stuck in this binary of, well, this is a democratic solution or this is a Republican solution. And what, what happens is we lose the ability to communicate and we can't cross over these barriers. It's because we've allowed our, our political system to co-opt the kingdom. Right. Yeah, we've decided that, that either party is somehow holy or somehow my political affiliation um, determines my level of Christian worth or something. And it's just, for me, it's just ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesus is the king. Yeah. 
he sets the policy. And um, if, <clears throat> I mean, you know, the vast majority of my life, I have voted um, Democrat and Republican. Um, um, and I have friends who are Democrat and Republican. Um, and so when I talk to my Democrat friends about abortion, we disagree. <laughs> They're still my friends, though, but we disagree. Uh, when I talk to my Republican friends about public policy, we disagree. We're still friends, though, um, because as far as I'm concerned, you can go to heaven, a Democrat, an independent, a green, a Republican. We can all go to heaven. What you can't do is go to heaven and not be in the kingdom and not have Jesus as the king. He's not sharing. And I think that that becomes problematic um, when you just talk about religiously, yeah. let alone race. Um, you talked about, um, I think we talked about it a little bit. You talked about the binary nature, nature of our society. And one of my biggest problems is how policemen are positioned in our society. What I'm saying is this, is that what we say is that uh, um, the black person is concerned about their experience. The white person is concerned about policemen coming home. That automatically sets up policemen as the protectors of white folks. So, 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 so the policemen are the protectors of white folks. And we just got to just deal with it. And that's problematic for me. You were telling me the other day that uh, law enforcement, when you were growing up, these are always people that are coming in Absolutely. to your neighborhood. Absolutely. And so there creates this tension of like, these are people that haven't been over to my house for dinner. Absolutely. These are people I didn't go to school with. These are people that I didn't grow up with. And so there's, there's, a, there's a tension there. Absolutely. Now, my, my greatest calling is not to fix... The political, the political world that, that I live in. Right. I think the kingdom of heaven is political. It's not partisan. Right. Right. right? It's Absolutely. not partisan. Absolutely. It's political. Absolutely. And I do think there's a, a time and a place for politics. Absolutely. What I care most about is that in churches, there can be people from Republican or Democrat or anywhere in between that can take the sacraments together and realize Absolutely. that their baptism matters more than how they, they come vote. to the table together. Exactly. Yes. And so how do we move past that binary? Where it's, well, this is the only option. This is my option. And I can't see you. I can't hear you. I can't, I, I can't be okay sitting next to you if I know you voted for this person. Well, first of all, I, I think it goes back before that. What I mean is that who set that up? Not, not who humans set up. I think the enemy set that up. What do you mean it? I mean the devil. I'm that guy. I believe in actual devil. <laughs> and I believe in actual demons and actual evil. So yeah, I am that guy. So if, if you're here and you're like that nouveau Christian, you know, it's, it's, it's the idea of sin. Well, I'm not that guy. I believe there's an actual devil, <laughs> you know, and there's actual sin. And I believe that there's an actual enemy of the kingdom of God, that he is divisive by nature. And I think he sets up stuff like this to destroy the kingdom. I, I really do. I think all of this, all of a sudden, you know, I mean, you, you, you've heard me talk. You've heard me talk to a lot of my friends. You, you know, I have a lot of friends. And these are just not token friends. I have friends who are white and black. Wait, am I your token friend? I would have chosen better. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're, you are my friend. <laughs> um, but, you know, and I, I said, hey, dude, you know, um, why are you saying nothing about this in the pulpit? Why do you say nothing? 
How, how do you feel if you don't hear your white preachers talking about things that you feel are devastating and life-altering to you? Well, if, here's the thing. If they said nothing ever about anything like that, I, I would think, okay, well, they just never say anything about anything. You know, I mean, you just, you know, they, they only preach, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You know, they, they never really are more located in their community like the prophet was. Like the prophet is, is communicated. He speaks the word of God to what's going on. in this. Okay, but that's not true. <laughs> see, see but, but that's not true. They will have a whole month on abortion. <laughs> you know, they will, you know, just, you know, but, but, but this, so that's a horrible sin. That must be eradicated. But this isn't. No, that's political. No, we don't want to touch that. Yo, really? Wait, we got to talk about the abortion thing. We also got to talk about this race thing. We, we got to, you know, this is real too. You, you know, come on now. So, but the thing about it though, uh, um, uh, our friend named Matt, Matt Range. You know Matt? <clears throat> you might know him. Sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know him. Sounds great. <laughs> You, you know if you see him. Anyway, I was talking to Matt, and Matt told me, he said, listen, man, I agree with you. Um, he said, i tell you what, though. I'm not going to lead anything. But if you do something, I'll support you. I said, okay. I mean, I would rather for you to lead. But if you say, well, I'll support. So I said, okay. So we had this thing, we called it Black Sunday. It's a takeoff of something else. Um, and we brought in... We brought in the local leader of the Black Lives Matter, Matter movement. Um, we brought in um, uh, uh, some policemen. We brought in a judge. Um, we brought in a lawyer. And we brought in a couple of preachers, um, male and female uh, a panel, to, to speak to this. And we just, we just let people talk. Because um, I think the church has to be the place where the Black Lives Matter person can come, where the chief of police can come, where the judge can come, and we can all talk. If I characterize any of those people as worse sinners, you know, how am I a follower of Jesus? And so that's what we did. I and mean, it was amazing. And it was amazing. As a matter of fact, the, the, uh, the leader of the, the Black Lives Matter movement, a young lady named Angela, she said, well, Faith, you know what? Had you not asked me to come, I'd never sit on a panel with policemen. Never. But had you asked me, and I, and I, think, I think once the church stops viewing itself as beholden to any political party, and we just represent the grace, love, and the truth of Jesus Christ, we can bring people to the forefront. We can set up situations where, where we can all talk. But as long as we are whatever political party, how are we the kingdom? Yeah. You know, I'm not trying to disqualify Christians. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, how can we say we're, we're, we're with King Jesus and we let some para-organization determine church policy? Yeah. Yeah, it just, it's problematic for me. And so, so and I, you know, I'll ask you this question since you put me on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the dynamic in black and white churches is different um, uh, mostly when you talk about the relationship of elders and preachers. Um, 
um, the elders and preachers at, at where, where I am, it may be different here, but um, the elders and preachers where I am, um, we see ourselves as co-leaders. Um, we, uh, the elders see their job as to make me look good. My job is to cast a vision and, and to champion it, and their job is to make sure that it looks good. And we are to help each other. I'm not to put them down. I mean, that's kind of how. Yeah. Um, it was the the, <laughs> the dynamic was significantly different for a lot of my my white friends um, who were preachers, and I got a lot of them who were preachers. And and so we were sitting now. We all went to lunch together. I said, "We well, you know, this would be a great thing to do. Let's do this." And they're like, "I said, so let's do it." It's like, "Yeah, we we really can't make the decision right now." I'm like. Why? Why? What? Yeah. Now we got to go and take it back to the elders, and the elders got to. I'm like, what? I said, I can just call my elders right now and say, Hey, this would be a good work. <laughs> let's go with it. Yep. And they say, Hey, let's go with it. Um, and I, if I come back to them and say, You know, let's paint the church purple, they're like, Yeah, no. <laughs> We're, we're not painting the church purple. But when you talk about the, the mission of the church, and there, it's always yes first, um, unless it costs money. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, you know, you know, I can't just spend money, you know, but if it's not spending money, if it's just, hey, you know, let's get together and talk about thus and so, we don't have to go to committee. So help me out here. Did you really just ask me a question about how it is working with my elders? <laughs> In church? Not necessarily, not necessarily your elders. <laughs> like, there's one standing in the back right there. Just, he's taking notes on how I answer this. Multiple ones all through here. Yes, thank you. Um, yeah, I think there's one of the problems in white churches is that preachers often end up sitting at the kids' table. And, like, I told... I literally felt like that. Yeah, I, like, I feel like in this stool next to you right now. Uh, I, I told this church before, when I was interviewing, like, I'm not going to come here if I... If I feel like I'm sitting at the kids' table. We don't get anything done that way. It doesn't serve the church well. And I, that's never been my experience here. It, it, it's a collaboration, and we work well together. That's awesome. And so there isn't a sense that, you know, the elders are the bad guys, and the staff is moving things forward. Like, it's, we're a team. We work together. We respect each other. We have each other's back. So that's not our experience. We can't, uh, we can't put any blame for us not doing something on them. That's not, that's not who Amen. we are. Amen. Yeah, so thank you for that question. You're welcome. We have an elders meeting soon, so we'll see how well I answered that one. You talked about uh, church being a place where you get Black Lives Matter, uh, law enforcement, judges, even lawyers to come to church, which is amazing if you get a lawyer at church. That's a miracle. I have a couple of lawyers at the and church. Don't. I got one right there. Who he you, said that in case yeah. somebody's taping this. He but, said it, not me. But, like, you make this a special Sunday where people can come, they can share their story. Yes. What is so transformative about just hearing other people's experience and, and telling their stories? Why does, why does that make such a difference? Well, uh, okay. Um, because here's the thing. I keep hearing everyone say... When I have these conversations, people suggest have conversations, listen, have meals with someone. Yes. Why does that make a difference? Well, because what happens is if you don't, you're listening to someone else's narrative about someone. Mm-hmm. You're not listening really to that person's narrative about, their, about themselves. You're listening to someone else's narrative about them. Mm-hmm. For example, you know, I mean... Um, 
I, I didn't, you know, I really didn't understand um, Black Lives Matter, um, um, a movement in, in, in L.A. Um, uh, not really, not at all. Um, and so sitting there and listening helped me really understand. Um, and it's, it, it's absolutely not what most people think. Um, um, but, but there's a certain characterization of them. And listening to the police officer who was there, um, the guy who was there, so I grew up with him, he's a friend of mine, so I, I knew his story, but I didn't know him as a professional. And so, and so, you know, he's talking, he says, hey, listen, if I show up and someone's acting crazy, I got to break heads. That's my job. If I show up, he says, but if you don't, if you're not, if you're acting right with me, I'm going to make sure I act right with you. Now, here's a follow up question I gave him. I said, well, my question to you, because I actually agreed with that. But my question to you is this, though. I'm a trained teacher um, by profession. I taught 15 years. If my kids act up or if the parents act up who come to my school, I'm the professional. I'm expected to keep a certain amount of decorum because I'm the professional. I'm not supposed to react in the same way they do. And I asked him, I said, why is that not applied to policemen? Why is the person who is scared out of their wits of you expected to be the professional and it's all right for you not to be? And he answered me. He said, it's not all right. Um, And we we got to do better. He says, but we're just people because we're scared too. So, yeah. so, so sometimes we're just we're just scared, and we're so we're scared, and and we do some stuff we shouldn't do. Um, but sometimes it is like that. He said, "But you're right. We are supposed to be the professionals." Yeah, and any job that requires you to wear a bulletproof vest to work, it's a scary job. <laughs> Absolutely. And, uh, I mean, there's so there's a. Um, there's a Bruce Springsteen song about one of the shootings that took place years ago. Uh, it's, I think it's called 42 Bullets. Anyone? 41. Okay. And so there's a famous story about uh, the music head. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. I was close. 42 is 42. Um, so the story is law enforcement shows up. They see someone pulling something out of their pocket. Um, they think it's a gun or something like that. It's, it's not. Uh, 41 shots later, this person is dead. And there's an easy way to like stereotype that and go, oh, this person's like just racist. And then you think about like the pressure of that situation and well, maybe if I was there, I wouldn't do that. And then there's this great test that I highly recommend everyone to take. It's called the Harvard Implicity Bias Test. Anyone ever heard of that? Yes, I am. Where you take this test and it causes you to deal with your micro responses to people who look different from you or even people who look the same from you. And I was, funny story, I, I was taking that test two years ago, and I get a call from our mutual friend, Sean Adams. And Sean goes, Luke, what are you doing? I go, "Um, just seeing how racist I am. What are you doing? Um, But it makes us all deal with, like, what are those things that you would not overtly say if you could think through, but what are those things that are under the surface that only in a pressure-packed situation would they reveal themselves? And I think that's the, you can't, change those things that are deep within you. But what you can do is disciple them. 
And you can start to humanize those responses you have of other people. And I think that's the power of getting together and hearing stories and, and knowing experiences. This is what it's like to be this person, and this is what it's like to be that person. And I've got a friend uh, who's a pastor in an area, I, I don't try to delete all the details, but from a place that has been ravaged with racial hatred and sin for years. And he has uh, this, this guy from his church who's older than you. And my friend asked him, have you ever had a meal with a person of color? He goes, no, I've never even ate a meal with a black person. You're 60 plus years old. Like, how are we letting God transform us in these different areas of our life if we're not even willing to sit down and hear and to learn the experience of someone who is equally made in the image of God just like you? Because, and this circles back to the beginning, it's not the responsibility of someone else, someone who looks different for me to come in and tell me how I'm supposed to be. It's my responsibility to be faithful to the work that God is trying to do in me to make me a minister of reconciliation right here and right now. Absolutely. It's very interesting. You, you say that a lot of, a lot of times... Um um, um, white guys will ask me, yo, well, what do I need to do? I say, <laughs> it's not magic. You don't need like a special seven steps. What you need to do is you need to hang out with people outside of controlled circumstances. <clears throat> what, what I mean is, is go out to eat, go to the ball game. And you got to do it more than once. You got you to get to the place where 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 it's all right for you to to say something that you would say outside of mixed company and and it's all right to be checked on it um i have a friend i won't i won't say his name um um, one of the best guys i know Uh, matter of fact he's dying right now um but one day he was picking me up i was going to preach at his church and he says to me um yeah fate i was fooling with this guy and had this rice rocket like, yeah, the what? <laughs> rice rocket. I said, what's a rice rocket? He's talking about a Japanese car. I was like, dude, that's super racist. <laughs> that is super racist. He's like, ah. <laughs> and we just kept on with it. Because he didn't feel like he was, and he, he, he's not racist. But that's just culturally, that's what they call them, rice rockets. Those are rice rockets and, you know. Um, but I was able to also say, dude, that's racist. So he felt comfortable enough to speak to me like he would speak um, outside of mixed company. And I felt company, comfortable enough to tell him to check him on his racism <laughs> and still be friends who are flawed individuals who, who are all fallen, who all got something. Well, I'll tell one on me. I, <laughs> I'll tell two on me. I was, I was teaching third grade at 107th Street Elementary School. And there was this beautiful white woman there. She's tall, statuesque, blue eyes, long blonde hair. Her name was Chaplicky. CZ something. What's the name? Chaplicky. Her last name was Chaplicky. Like a CZ something. Anyway, that wasn't the thing. You know, just names are names. Um, um, but she was so down to earth, so cool, so level. She messed up all of my racist racist stereotypes of a tall, blonde, blue-eyed woman. And I had to tell her, I said, you know what? I am so sorry. Because I had you read, you know, when I saw you, I mean, she's gorgeous. She's probably 5'10". She walks in, and I'm like, here here comes Barbie. You know, I'm I'm speaking her head to start doing like this. 
she was literally, she was working on her doctorate in something and she was just smart and she was down to earth and she was like talk to one of the sisters from, the, I know y'all understand, it was like, she was like this, she didn't talk around stuff, she talked to me straight, looked at me, and I had to tell her, I said, you know what, that's my bad, I have allowed media, you know, to tell me, you know, what tall, blue-eyed, black, blonde women are. Second story, I was, had an had a instructor named Miss Wolf um, when I was working on my education degree. Uh, just smart and a straight shooter. Next, I'm in my, I'm, I'm not in her class anymore, but I'm in another class in my poli-sci class. And I tell my teacher, he, said, he, asked, he started to ask us about race. I said, um, and no, no, we were talking about women. We were talking about women. And he said, uh, well, you know, tell me about the smartest woman. I said, well, Ms. Wolf, that's the smartest white woman I've ever met. I had gotten A in every test, and he gave me a B for my grade. <laughs> but I knew why. I knew why. After I said, that was just too racist. It's like, oh, so like a white woman can't be smart, dude, really? But again, you see that? That's somebody else informing me on how to, to think about a person, right? Um, and I think the same thing happens when we don't hang out with one another. We allow everybody else to tell us how to think, feel about one another. And suddenly when we talk to each other, all those implicit biases that are the backstory narrative aren't from what I know about Luke, they're from what somebody told me about Luke. If I, if I judge Luke about how I see him now, um, I wouldn't like him. Easy now. Easy now. <laughs> Easy. No, no, I wouldn't like him because, because of his haircut. No, not because he, he's obviously a handsome dude. That's what I'm talking about. I'm, I'm saying is no, that it's awkward. he's got, for me, when I grew up in the 60s and 70s, the only people who wore this haircut were the Germans I saw on TV. <laughs> right, you remember? They all see you remember? They're, they're on, they had the you know, cone hair back real on the side. Those are the only people. And then later, the only people who did this, <laughs> right? See, so, so I, I wouldn't have, I would have liked it. Well, let's wrap this up. We're done. We're done. You know, I've been told that my haircut looks like Kim Jong Un before. <laughs> And no, now, you look great, man. I'm just. And oh, now I'm just, I look like a Nazi. So, <laughs> no, you don't. On that note, let's say thank you to Faye for being here. <laughs> Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned. <laughs>